good afternoon on this wonderful and beautiful first day of the Feast of Tabernacles for this year. I've been looking forward to this, and here it is. So, uh, in a time of joy and feasting, with all the great meaning that is behind this festival, and we will hear more about that and enjoy it as we go through it. Uh, well, I thought there was something wrong here. I guess we're okay. Uh, tomorrow morning, we have a breakfast scheduled, as you see on your uh, feast schedule, but I'll mention it here, uh, with a one o'clock service. And one reason I mention that is because we do have people on the phone line uh, who are not here, and we do have some 11 o'clock services and so on, so I'm trying to uh, announce them ahead of time so they know when to tune in. In fact, I had a call from one just before coming over and said, when is it? <laughs> so uh, that's much on my mind. So 9 o'clock breakfast tomorrow with a 1 o'clock service, and then, as you know, we have a, a meal in the evening as well. So a pretty full day coming up tomorrow. Now before sermon, we have special music uh, entitled The Days of Elijah. For those involved in that, if you'll begin coming up, we'll... This is basically taken from Malachi 4, among other scriptures.
such a simple message and so direct and yet so moving and inspiring the things that God has in mind <clears throat> and these are certainly those days that they just sang about a lot of glory, a lot of joy is just ahead of us and yet at the same time as mentioned there and in scripture these are days of trial these are days of trouble and difficulty uh, culminating in beauty but in the meantime a lot of sorrow is upon us. We talked about that some on Sabbath, and I mentioned at the time there, of course, will be escalation and the beginnings here of World War III. And overnight, uh, Russia hit the Ukraine with 83 missiles, apparently, hitting almost every major city, even hitting Zelensky's office buildings, and they concentrated on power, uh, the power grid upon water supplies and uh, various important parts of the infrastructure. Apparently some of the missiles were shot down, but many of them hit home, hit very close. I saw quite a few pictures and it's tragic to see such things going on. Uh, but here you have it, 83 missiles and apparently continuing. So Russia is not sitting back and just taking that destruction of the bridge. Uh, they are answering in kind and answering very resoundingly, and I don't think they're going to back up. We read in the Russian, I mean in the American media, that Russia is losing the war and uh, Ukraine will win and the U.S. and NATO behind them will win. And I'm here to tell you that is not going to happen. Russia will not lose the war. And I have scripture to back it up. I also will tell you that NATO is being dissolved. Its dissolution is in progress. We've had NATO around for as long as a lot of you have lived. And it's been there as an alliance between the United States and primarily Europe and primarily the nations of Israel. Now there may be some Israelites also in Eastern Europe, Poland, Czechoslovakia, some of those countries through there may indeed also be Israelite. We don't have total knowledge of everywhere Israel is, but we have a pretty good idea that it's Western Europe, and there being 12 tribes, Mr. Armstrong kind of, got, kind of divided it up and allocated to some of those nations where he felt uh, they fit. And I think many of them do fit. I don't know that they all do. And I've come to doubt Germany, as you well know, thinking it may be Dan as opposed to Ireland. But we don't know exactly, but I do know this. The times of the Gentiles are almost upon us, and their reign will last 42 months, as is clearly stated, and Israel will be destroyed. That being the case, uh, from Scripture, I can tell you that NATO will be dissolved. Now, I didn't get that off the alternative news. Where did I find it? Well, we just went over it, really. Let's go back for a moment to chapter 9 of Isaiah. It's talking here, and I quoted it even the day before yesterday, how our leaders are causing us to go into error, and they seek our destruction and will cause it in spite of things there in the middle of chapter 9. But notice with this destruction and the wrath of God is mentioned in verse 19 and people will be grabbing in verse 20 whatever they can find to eat on the right hand or on the left hand because severe famine and pestilence is coming upon this nation and in Europe and they shall not be satisfied they shall eat every man the flesh of his own arm. So 
it's implying cannibalism here. It states it specifically in other scriptures, but also stealing from one another and eating what another man's arm may have produced could also be a reckoning of this. But notice verse 21. <clears throat> Manasseh, Ephraim, and Ephraim Manasseh, and they together shall be against Judah. For all this, God's anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. So we're going to have Manasseh against Ephraim, Ephraim against Manasseh, and both of them against Judah. Well, I think it's very clear in Genesis 49 into 48 that Ephraim, the younger brother, would become the strongest of the two between Ephraim and Manasseh, and that the sons of Joseph, those two, would be the most prosperous of all. It's very clear in Genesis 49. But that the younger brother would actually be greater than the uh, older brother. So here we have, and I think clearly identified, uh, the book of Hosea goes through it a lot. Jeremiah 31 tells us that Ephraim has been exalted to the state of firstborn, not Manasseh or not Reuben, but Ephraim. And here, as we come to the end, Great Britain as an empire is basically dissolved and gone. But the American, and I think you can call it an empire, an empire of, of uh, strength and power and influence, if not uh, having subjugated nations and put them in under us as part of a traditional empire, still there there as allies and partners, if you will, and still under our control and power. And all Europe is there today, to this date. But it will not continue that way. NATO will be dissolved, and I think this scripture makes that very, very clear. The United States and England, or the United Kingdom, have been the closest of all the brothers of Israel. Uh, historically here, after the revolution and forward, England and the U.S. have been very, very close as very, very tight brothers. And it remains so until this very day. But when God says that those two will go head-to-head -head against each other and fight each other, and that Judah will be hated by both of them, then it has to come apart. It can't remain as it is. Because we will no longer be allied with the United Kingdom, but we will be fighting with them. And if the two closest brothers are fighting, what are the rest going to be doing? Uh, I think that comes without saying, really. So, we are already seeing the beginnings of this prophecy come to pass. So far, wherever the United States is headed, NATO went also. But now we put those heavy sanctions on Russia, and it's coming to roost in Europe, first of all. Without gas, probably with a shortage of oil, a shortage of grain, a shortage of fertilizer, Quite a few things that we have cut Europe off from being able to receive from Russia. And it is very likely, if not 99.9% sure, that it was the United States behind the blowing up of the gas lines. And that cut the supply to Europe, who are our allies. <clears throat> you see the people in Washington... The Pentagon and the U.S. military, apart from even the government itself, but the government is involved, do not want to see the United States destroyed in terms of monetarily. Now, they don't care about us at all in terms of us as a people. But the people behind the scenes are very, very wealthy people, and they want their wealth preserved. 
Therefore, every time someone has threatened our petrodollar or our wealth, our free credit card, we have bombed them into oblivion and killed their leaders. And it appears that we are now in that process with Russia because Russia and China have combined to get rid of the United States dollar. Now, we've pushed them to do that. We've pushed them with sanctions to where they have to do something else to survive other than the United States dollar. And now that they are starting to do that, we're going to continue to push and hopefully destroy Russia. But, you know, that won't happen because we know the Assyrian and that is, I think, 99% indicated today to be Russia, is going to come and take us into captivity. So that being the case, Russia's going to win over there. Don't know exactly how or what they'll do, but they started it last night, and I think they will continue it, and they will win. The United States and NATO will not. NATO will come apart and the United States and Britain are going to start squabbling among themselves as brothers and not be allies anymore. And the Zionist Jews, they may not understand who true Jews are and who Edomite Esau Jews are, but they're holding the keys to an awful lot of financial power, and the book of Obadiah says that that would be the case, that they would be in the, the halls of power, and that they would help bring it down, and that they would joy over our destruction, that is, of all Israel, because Esau hated Jacob, hated all Israel, and God says they'll get the revenge at the end. Very clear in Scripture. So, if Ephraim and Manasseh are fighting among themselves, they both hate the Edomites, whom they think are Jews, and maybe the true Jews as well, because they represent God in some way. Not much, but a little. So, this thing is coming to a climax that is going to be won by the Gentile nations led by the Assyrians. And then they will take over the rulership of the world for 42 months, the times of the Gentiles, which is the same amount of time that the two witnesses will be preaching against all the Gentile nations. Won't be preaching against the Israelite nations. They will have been destroyed. They won't even exist anymore. Western Europe and America, and Canada, are absolutely doomed. We know that from many, many scriptures. I, we could go through a hundred of them today if we went real fast. To show that this is going to occur, and you're beginning to see it happen in real time as the nations of Europe are getting more and more upset. they got problems in France right now, they're beginning to blame the leadership for lack of petrol and the high price of it and this and that. And they're beginning to rebel in Germany over the fact that they know many of them will either starve or die of cold and disease brought on by cold weather and no heat and so on. This very winter, it's upon them. And how far will they follow the United States in sanctioning and destroying, or trying to destroy, the very nation where they get their gas and oil. There, there comes a point there where this doesn't work. And it won't. And God tells us how it will come out. Isn't that beautiful? I don't mean the story's necessarily beautiful, but isn't it beautiful that you can go to this book and say... What is going to happen? So I can say with all confidence, you're going to see NATO fall apart. And it'll be every man for himself, eating the flesh of his brother's arm, or his own arm even. They'll eat themselves up. 
America will eat itself up with civil war. And that is tied in very carefully with Jeremiah 50 and 51, where it doesn't just say that the remnant will flee to Zion, and that will be the end of the story. It mentions those dwelling at Zion a few times through both those chapters, and what will be happening, including civil war. So the Assyrian may start making some encroachment, but at the same time, we're going to have civil war going on. And as I stated a couple of days ago, uh, they can waltz in when the time is right. Our leaders are selling us out right now, today, in Washington, D.C., and already have. So Russia and China know the game plan. The Chinese have set up police districts in our cities, and it's open now to the world to know. What are you doing with a police station in New York City run by the Chinese? I, I couldn't have not even imagined that 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, it, it just wouldn't have happened. It couldn't have happened. But now it's a fact of life. Well, let's go back in here because there's much to be said. And we finished, <coughs> finished up still in a bit of chapter 10. I didn't quite get it finished. Let's go down to verse 24. Therefore, thus says the Eternal of hosts, O my people that dwell in Zion. Now, he's going to bring his people, and they're going to be in the Zion-Jerusalem area, which we're already on the edge of. And the Assyrian will come upon us. It says it will even come across the neck to Jerusalem. And, of course, they will set up their headquarters there eventually. But he said, My people that dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite you with a rod, and shall lift up his staff against you after the manner of Egypt or Mithraim. Now, a rod, generally speaking, is not a death-dealing weapon. Uh, if you look back at the way the Mithraimites handled Israel when they were there those 430 years. It was with a rod of iron in the sense of slavery. They weren't killing them off uh, as in war, but they were ruling over them very strongly. And he says, that's what the Assyrian will try to do, lift up his staff against you after the manner of, in the same way that it happened in Mithraism. Now, toward the end of the story there, of course, uh, when they gathered at the Red Sea, here comes Mithraim with all the chariots to kill them all. So it's not outside their thinking to destroy us all. But God says, and I, if I'm not interpreting this wrongly, that they'll treat us like we were as slaves and try to enslave us. And then he will save us from the death that they will try to bring at the end of this. If we go on, we'll see that a little bit. Uh, For yet a very little while, and the indignation shall cease, and my anger in their destruction. So he is going to take care of the problem. Uh, his church is a small little flock, although he does tell us in Isaiah 40 and in Micah 4 that he will make us a sharp threshing instrument. A threshing instrument just tears the wacky out of everything it hits. And that is what ultimately will happen with the two witnesses. When they go against the city and say, obey God or else, it's very clear in Scripture they will not obey, so they'll get the else. And that will be plagues of all kinds and lack of rain. 
And a lot of destruction and death will come as a result of those plagues. Because God's not fooling around. So, don't worry about the Assyrian. He'll cuff you about a bit, but he's not going to kill you. The Lord of hosts shall stir up a scourge for him according to the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. <clears throat> and as his rod was upon the sea, so shall he lift it up after the manner of Mithraim. So he compares it to crossing the Red Sea and of Gideon at Midian. Uh, there the, uh, the uh, Midianites turned on each other and killed each other in the night, and they were destroyed at the Red Sea. So God says, I will take care of it in that manner, not the world. It shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off your shoulder and his yoke from off your neck, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. So the anointing of Christ and the anointing of Zerubbabel and Joshua as the two leaders, uh, that is also an anointing and a, a, uh, an appointment to a particular job that is going to send the Gentile nations into chaos and confusion because they can't fight them till the last three and a half days. They can't win. So the Gentiles will be in charge and will be ruling under Satan, but they'll always have opposition from God and those whom he sends because of the anointing. And then it says, he's come to Aath, he has passed the Migron at Machmash, he has laid up his carriages, they've gone over the passage, they've taken up their lodging at Geba, Rama is afraid, Gibeah of Saul is fled, so the Assyrian is going to put some fear into the cities of Israel, which is what some of these were, and they came in to take over. So people are going to be afraid. Now, the people that dwell in Zion are different than the population of the nation. The Assyrian is going to come in and destroy the nation, but not those who dwell in Zion. God makes a difference for those who are obeying him. The rest of the nation is not obeying him, and they're there for the wrath of God, if you will. The only ones who will escape are those who will serve and obey and revere and honor our God in heaven. And the rest will come under the punishment of the Gentile nations led by the Assyrians. <clears throat> it says, lift up your voice, O daughter of Galen, uh, cause it to be heard unto Laish. Uh, there was an interesting story there, uh, because at Galen... Is where Saul gave uh, David's wife, Michael, to Falti, the son of Laish, at Galen. It will seem, then, like God gives us to the Assyrians. Maybe that's why he used that particular uh, couple of towns there, because that was what they were famous for, is Saul giving away uh, Michael. And to those dwelling in Zion and those in the rest of the country, uh, certainly it will seem God is just giving them to the Assyrians. And to the country, he will. But not to the church. Not to spiritual Judah. And then it mentions, oh, poor Anatot. Right in the same breath. Why did we come up with the name Anatot for here? Well, I looked it up, and it meant answer. And they bought a field, and that was the answer to Jeremiah there for what was going on at that time. And it fit. But, and I had read, but I was not thinking of these uh, other references where there would be a rebellion at Anatoth, or, oh, poor Anatoth, they're coming up like they're coming up on top of you. Uh, but they're here. <laughs> so we live with that. But God says he will deliver. And 
that Mina is removed, the inhabitants of Gedim gather themselves to flee before the Assyrians. As yet shall he remain at Nob that day, he shall shake his hand against the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Now when you're in one spot, you're not at Zion, you're at Nob. And you shake your fist at the dwellings of Zion, you are not conquering them. You are angry, you are frustrated, you are threatening, but you are not conquering. He'll shake his hand against it. Behold, the Eternal, the Lord of hosts, shall lock the bow with terror, and the high ones of stature shall be hewn down. So he's using a forest, trees, as uh, an analogy of the Assyrian and how they're going to be chopped down. The haughty shall be humbled. And he shall cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one. Well, Christ is a mighty one, and he will send Zerubbabel, who is also mighty under him. And you see in Micah 5, that after it talks about coming to the wilderness and being delivered there, that seven or eight principal men will go out against the Assyrians, and cause them to fall. So this isn't the only scripture about this. We've been over that before, and you're familiar with it. So God is going to give power as a new, sharp threshing machine to his church. And the Assyrian will stand off and shake his hand in frustration and anger, but God says he will destroy them there in Micah 5. And he says he'll do it as in the days of Gideon or the Red Sea right here in this context. So we don't need to fear Russia and China and the coalition of Gentiles who will be coming against Israel if we are obeying God himself. Now I think it's very clear our nation and the nations of Europe are not following God. They could care less about God for the most part. And we will become secular nations very few go to church anymore, and the ones that do, don't do anything with it. Religion is basically kind of out in our culture. There's still some who claim to be Christian, but they're not living it. And if you don't live it, it's empty and means nothing. So, God will come after those, and he knows. He says, pray that you be accounted worthy to escape these things there in Matthew 24. Now, here's the key. God knows who his righteous are. Haggai makes it very clear he will stir the ones he wants to come and build in the temple and to build Jerusalem. And if he doesn't stir them, they won't come. So, therefore, he tells us, pray that you be accounted worthy to escape more than one time of trouble. Isaiah 52 talks of the remnant coming to the Zion area. And he says there, don't flee hastily, but get it done. Matthew 24, when they set up the abomination in the temple, he says, flee and don't even go back. That's hasty. Because if you do go back or look back or delay in any way, the army will get you. So the Assyrian is going to come very close to getting the church. Very close. There in Revelation 12, it says, flee to your place. And he says, the devil will send a flood or an army after you. And Matthew 24 makes it very clear, if you're not in a hurry and God isn't with you, you're not going to make it. So he will look at each person who might want to be part of that and see whether in his eyes they qualify and are worthy for that deliverance. And if they are not, they'll be caught by the army or break a leg or something which will prevent them from getting there. It's that simple. 
So, we can't play games with God. We have to be serious, non-hypocritical, and following God with all our heart, mind, body, and soul is what we have to be doing. And at the same time, praying for mercy, forgiveness, grace, in time of need. Because none of us are truly worthy, if you were to put your worthiness up there, it is only worthy in the estimation of God who figures, I'll continue to work with that one. I will accept that one. It won't be because that one's perfect, but he'll make a delineation in his mind, a judgment, which ones come and which ones do not. So, we pray. But make no bones about it, the Assyrian is coming. <clears throat> and he'll be cut down like the thickets of the forest with iron. A clear cut, if you will. Now we come to the Feast of Tabernacles, chapter 11. And I didn't work this out, but uh, here it is. I, I was just starting into this, and I think God led me to do it. Because we have all this trial and trouble just ahead of us. And here today, we have gathered to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, which pictures the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ. So the Feast of Tabernacles is a direct type of God's thousand-year reign on the earth. That's the way it comes in the Holy Day system. The last part of it, the Feast of Tabernacles of the last great day, representing salvation finally to the world and to those who have lived from Adam and on down who never had an opportunity of salvation in the great white throne judgment. So, we went through Passover, Pentecost, Trumpets, and Atonement, and all of those had primarily to do with the church as it existed even in the wilderness with Moses and Abraham and others, and in the New Testament with the apostles and on down to us today. Those holy days were primarily about us, at least in the overall sense. And it stops when the Feast of Tabernacles starts, because trumpets and atonement represent the time when we are changed, become immortal, and become the bride of Christ. So we do not live into the millennium as human beings. We will be spirit at that time. So the millennium then pictures those people who are left after all this end-time holocaust occurs where over 90% of the population of the earth are going to die. Bill Gates and all those people have the right idea in one way. They want to destroy the population of the earth for their greeny ideas and that they might rule the world with only a few people left and it'll all become green again. And what, in some respects, you'd have to say they mean well. They think what they are doing is for the best of mankind, what part of it might survive. Of course, some of them are going on even into transhumanism and trying to make us have robots and not humans anymore. So there's that wild and crazy element involved. But still in all, God has decreed that over 90% of the population will be killed. And he says when Christ returns, he will set up judgment over 100 million there in Daniel. Out of over eight and a half billion only 100 million left. That's not very many <clears throat> by comparison. About a third of what we have in the U.S., a little less than a third, is all that will be left of the population of the earth. So he will set up to rule after all opposition has been destroyed and most people dead. Now, he has the best interest of the population of the earth in mind, all the way from Adam 
down till today, and on. In that his plan is for all those people to come up in a second resurrection and be given opportunity without Satan around for salvation. So all your relatives going all the way back, and all of mine, and everybody that's ever lived, and never knew God or had opportunity in repentance and salvation, will receive that. That's the beauty of the plan of God. So that every human being who has ever lived, and I think probably every baby that has been aborted, will be brought up and given a chance at life, at life eternal. Because they are, even the babies, are made in the image of God. And they are living beings and are killed, murdered. How horrible it is. Anyway, all opposition has to put down, be put down, and Christ is going to come and rule with what? His own rod of iron in a fist of velvet, to quote the book. He will come with love and joy and peace and harmony, but he won't put up with any foolishness. You will have been humbled by the Holocaust if you're still alive. And you'll be ready to listen. And if you aren't ready to listen, the rod of iron will be applied. He comes... You refuse to come to the Feast of Tabernacles. The rain will stop. And you won't get any more rain <clears throat> until you begin to die of starvation and thirst. And then you'll say, where's the feast? Pretty simple. He doesn't have to really hit you over the head with a rod. Just stop the rain. I'll take care of the problem. He knows how to handle it. So, we're seeing right now today the beginnings of this Assyrian coming and the conspiracy that we read about in chapter 8 and on through 9 and 10 until most of the population is done. Oh, I don't want to miss the contrast here between the plan of God and the plan of the devil. See, God's plan and purpose has everybody coming up in the first resurrection or living on into the millennium or coming up in the second resurrection at the end of the thousand years and to be judged by a human life without Satan there and the Father and the Son ruling here on the earth. They will all have an opportunity of salvation. Most Israelites who have lived have never had that, much less the Gentiles. Most Americans today have no clue who the true God is and what his true word is or his true gospel is. And he tells us if they come and bring not this doctor, don't allow them in your house or bid them Godspeed. Turn them away. That's scripture. And we live by that. And we'll live by that. You know how the old song about Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and the holy city, and how everyone will enter and no one be denied. I don't know who, what Protestant wrote those words, but that ain't Bible. I can read real quickly there in Revelation 21 where it says that the liar and the thief and the fornicator and the adulterer and all these will not be allowed in the holy city. So all who will enter will not enter. That's just the way it is. God will not allow that in the holy city. But it comes down here at the beginning of the millennium. And there'll still be some liars and thieves and people who won't want to keep the feast of tabernacles. I think Zechariah 14 implies that. They'll be turned away. They won't be allowed in there. Go, repent, and be baptized, and repent means change, 
quit lying and stealing and fornicating, and then we'll talk. But not until. So if you're going to sing that song, you've got to change some words, or you're violating Scripture. <laughs> There's a lot of Protestant songs like that. Change the words a little bit, and they said pretty good. Because Satan has taken everything and put just a little twist on it. Now, God's plan allows for everyone to have a chance at salvation who has ever lived. Satan's plan, as he has announced, is to have a peaceful thousand-year reign, and when it's all done, everyone will be dead. He's going to try to kill everybody before Christ even returns. And Christ makes it very plain that in those seven last plagues, if it were not cut short, there would be no flesh saved alive. So they'll tell you about this peaceful Gentile world that's coming without God, and how everything's going to be wonderful, and the beast and the false prophet are going to feed you this smoke, and the whole world is going to accept it except the few gathered at Zion. The whole world. They're going to get their digital money. And they won't be able to buy and sell unless they're part of it. And they'll all take part in it. Except for a very few. But his plan is to kill every human being that has ever existed and then take over God's throne and kill God and the holy angels. He's been trying to do that for quite some time now. It hasn't worked out for him. But he is going to come so close down here, killing all human beings. Oh, my! Is he and those under him, the beast, the beast and false prophet, and all the world, are they ever going to party when they kill the two witnesses, thinking they have won? Oh, it's going to be exciting. We've whooped God's witnesses. And we won, and now we will reign forever. Three and a half days later, the bubble burst. That's just the way it's going to be. So Satan's plan is to destroy everybody. God's plan is to save anyone who will be saved. Including, as Paul put it in Romans 11, all Israel. Not every individual and there are some who proclaim total universal salvation, but Christ did not say that. He said there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, there will be a lake of fire, and there will be some in it. That's very clear. It does not appear that there will be a great number in it, especially of Israel, but maybe more of the Gentiles, who are deceived so very easily when... Satan is loose at the end of a thousand years. He deceives them so quickly, it's almost unbelievable, and they come against God and Christ and the church and the whole world, for that matter. So putting down rebellion and putting down Satan is quite a job. All right, let's get into chapter 11 then. This one, traditionally, over the Decades, the church has always gone to a piece of tabernacles to talk about the conditions of the millennium. So, Assyrian being cut down, end of chapter 10, and then it goes forward to the millennium. Now, Isaiah and the scriptures are not done dealing with this end time yet. So, chapter 11 is put in here to show what happens after the destruction of Israel. See, up to this point, we're talking about Israel and Judah and Manasseh and Ephraim and so on and how they will be destroyed. Okay? And then the next thing with them, for the ones that survive, would be going into the millennium. Okay? So the Gentile world, which rules during this period of time, will not yet have been dealt with. Israel will have been destroyed. And the next move for them is the blessing of God at the beginning of the millennium. 
So we'll read more about death and destruction through Isaiah even, but it ends up really nice at the end with the last chapters. Anyway, in chapter 11, fast forwarding to today, Feast of Tabernacles. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. So, uh, Jesse, father of David, comes through that line of people. And a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Eternal shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Eternal. What if today, this very day, he read that verse and it applied beautifully to Joe Biden and Putin and Z and the rulers of this world. What a different world this would be. But this is just the opposite of them. <laughs> just the opposite. God is going to provide the right kind of attitude in leadership. There's nothing wrong with leadership from the top down. It just needs to be righteous leadership not evil leadership. And when it is in the hands of Satan, who is to the core evil, and in the hands of men who live according to Satan's way, you can have no government that's good anywhere of any kind. Because no matter what checks and balances, and we thought we had it figured out here in America with our republic and the three branches to uh, ameliorate, and mediate each other, that we could have a wonderful government that would last forever and ever. And that's what we grew up being taught. And yet now we have those three branches arguing and fighting among themselves and ignoring each other and saying, this is what I'm going to do. I don't care about you. And it's falling apart very, very rapidly. So whether it be a dictatorship, a republic, a democracy, man simply cannot rule himself righteously and peacefully anywhere under any kind of man's government, and all of them are inspired by Satan. So only the one inspired by God and administered by God can bring peace and happiness and joy to the world. And today represents the beginning of that rule. And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the eternal. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, <coughs> and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. Now, this happens, I believe, in two stages. He's talking here because he calls the Rebbebel the righteous branch of the eternal there in Zechariah 4. And in other places throughout the prophecies, uh, the Rebbebel as a signet of God against the nations, and Joshua with him, are there to rule the church, the remnant, to rule righteously, righteously by the Spirit of God, so that you have a small group of people in Zion, Jerusalem and then Zion, who are obeying God, and they will have righteous leadership, and they will be used as an example to the world. Christ told his church to be a light on a hill. And the prophecies indicate that light will come from Mount Zion and Mount Ephraim at Zion to the whole world. And he will also send out the two with a rod of iron, plagues and whatever, 
to use against the people of the world who will not repent. You have to have, and I've said it by now at least a hundred times, you have to have somewhere to point, some example to give people of what it is you're talking about. What do you mean the kingdom of God? We have the beasts and the false prophets. They won't call them that. They'll call them by some kind of wonderful names. God calls them beasts and the false prophets. I'm sure they'll have some catch you on the back names for each other, and everyone will call them that, whatever it is. And they'll deceive the world. But, where do you point? Where does the church today point? We don't have any place to point, do we? Where can you look on this earth and say, do that? You and I have this book, The Testimony and the Law. And he tells us there in Isaiah 8, we just read, only if they have the testimony of Christ and the law can you look to them. Well, the church today has been divided and stewed out and is in such disarray that it cannot be used as a light on a hill for the world in any way. It just isn't there anymore. It was there in part for a while, and the world began some of them to come, as they were called of God. And then that stopped, because enough had been called, and then he had to start the choosing phase. And he's in that today. Whom he will bring to build a temple in Jerusalem. But until that is set up, you got nobody to point to. You can go out and get on television and start preaching, Hey everybody, God told me to preach the gospel as a witness to the world, and I've got a place for you to look. I want you to go to the Worldwide Church of God, and there's your witness of God. There's your light on a hill. Wait a minute. Where would they look? There's no place to look that fits that description. Preaching the gospel around the world today as a witness is impossible. Because there's nothing to point to that you could say, this is where you ought to be. That would carry any weight. Because God has not intervened in any place, anywhere, in any way that would give us something to point to. Now, he's going to. He's going to do signs and wonders, do some healings. He's going to begin to draw a people together to be a light on a hill. And until that happens, there's nothing to point to. <clears throat> Let's take us, for example. We could say, point to that little bunch of people out there and the southwest desert. That crazy guy that says the promised land is in the southwestern U.S. Well, duh. How many going to believe that? We're done already. And they're keeping Saturday and the feast days and so on and so forth. Go on and on. But the power of God has not been shown here or anywhere else as of today. Not in United, not in Living, not in Philadelphia, not in anyone you want to name. These things have not occurred. So you'd just be blabbing in the wind, wasting your breath. And that's why God tells even the two witnesses there in Revelation 11, do not go to the world. Leave out the court of the Gentiles, go to the altar and them that worship there. Because if there is going to be anybody you could ever point to and say, do what they're doing and be like them and you'll have God's blessing, it's going to have to be those people. It does not exist today. 
I don't care how self-righteous anybody might be. It certainly doesn't exist here. I'll be the first to say it. We're all struggling with our nature just to be Christians. We're struggling just to get along with each other. We're struggling to love each other. We're struggling to help each other. We're struggling to be basic Christians. And you're going to point to us and say, hey, be just like them. That wouldn't ring very well. we got work to do yet. got work to do. But it's going to take the Spirit of God. And he makes it very clear to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by strength, but by my Spirit. And that's what he opens chapter 11 with, because he's going to make a microcosm of the millennium where the two who go out to preach to point to and say, if you would obey God, you would have Eden. He's going to make this area like Eden. No foxtails, no goat heads, no mosquitoes, no blistering sun, can have a canopy over it, won't even feel the rain. It's going to be like Eden was. And then you could go out and preach to the world. That's how it could be for you. Not just getting so much put on your little digital thing every month and being able to buy enough food to barely live. It could be like that if you would repent and obey God. So those two are going to come out, led by Zerubbabel, as the arm of God. Now, ultimately, this points to Christ, because Zerubbabel is just a type of Christ. Who comes to oversee a small group by his leadership that will begin to look like Christ. I say rebel belts, the type of Christ, and people might panic. But we're all here to be a type of Christ, aren't we? Aren't we to live like Him? Aren't we to talk like Him and walk like Him and be a type of Him? Yeah. Every one of us is a type of Christ. Now go home and look in the mirror and go to work. <laughs> we're, we're not the kind of type we need to be yet. We're working on it. We're a work in progress. <laughs> and I hope progress is the right word. We're moving forward. So we don't have time for the rest of this and my voice just quit. But he's going to send a branch that is a type of the Christ who will rule in the millennium to begin to oversee this and Christ himself is going to come and dwell with us as he says in Zechariah 2. So he's going to be here overseeing the whole thing and it will all be by his power and by his spirit not human power. So it says that the one he sends for the first stage will have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the eternal. Won't be the eternal, but fear of the eternal. So the first stage of this is human. But won't it be wonderful when we have someone who truly is a righteous man to lead us? We don't have one on the earth today. What we have today is, as Daniel says in Daniel 4, the weakest and basest men of the earth he has put in charge. So when you look at the leaders of this world today, some of whom I named, realize they are the basest men on earth. And when you hear their pedophiles and all of that kind of thing, most of it's true. And if that one isn't true of him, then this one is, because they are the basis of men. And God put them there to oversee this destruction under Satan. But God is going to send us someone 
who will be righteous. And we will thrive under that. And we will learn. And we'll become better types of Christ. And then God will be able to use the two to go out and say, look at those from Zion. This could be your life if you would just repent and change and grow and overcome and worship God in heaven. That's all we have time for, so we'll stop there for today.